everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And welcome back to another week. I have David, who is a nurse that I work with at the hospital, where the teaching facility where I work. Hey, David. Hello. How are you? Good. Good talking with you, Tina. It's good to have you on here. So David works night shift, and I work day shift, but I have you guys know I work night shift back and forth. I started out on night shift, came to, day, came to days, then went back to nights, and now I'm back on days. So I remember David from when I first started, and he would be the person who, when I, we need something, everyone has, we've done, we've done all the steps, and the primary nurse tried to start the IV twice, and then the, t- the quote, unit expert <laughs> tried uh, once or twice, and then you, you just have to, like, go, okay, now what are we going to do? And you were that person that we, <laughs> we would call, and you would just, like, fly in, start the IV, and fly right back out. And it was like, oh, whatever, who was that? <laughs> 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 and, I mean, it's just really, really nice to have a resource like that. Well, it's a, it's a good job to be in. Uh, one of the things I like about it is every time I come on a unit, uh, I'm there to help. And so um, that's a nice feeling. Well, it's really nice to have nurses who are experienced, who have a few years under their belt with that wisdom and knowledge. And you've seen a lot of different things because it's not just starting IVs. That That is invaluable. I mean, when people need multiple antibiotics all at once and blood and all sorts of things, you need a lot of times more than one IV. And if you don't have a, a central line or a pick or something like that, and someone's just got awful veins or a lot of edema, or you're just a new nurse and you just don't know what you're doing, <laughs> it's just not good, you know? But that's not all. That's not all you do. Like your your value is way more than that because you also, and, and people that are in your uh, position as a, a clinical resource nurse, um, you're kind of there to help nurses who are kind of like, oh, I'm worried, uh, but I don't know. Should I be? Should I be worried? I, I don't. I'm not sure what to do. Like I have this feeling that, and then you're kind of there. You can come in, look at the situation, maybe look through the chart, see what's going on, look at the patient, and then say either, mm, no, I would be worried. Yeah, go ahead, contact the doctor, or, well, I think you could do this or this. You know, and you can be that voice of of wisdom and reason because let's face it. We don't really have a whole lot of experienced nurses anymore in the hospital, anywhere. That's right. And, you know, I always think two heads are better than one. And so it's nice to be able to sit down and work through a problem with somebody else. You know, having a different perspective really helps sometimes. So that's one of the nice parts of my job is I get to be able to help do that kind of thing, help to solve problems. One thing I remember uh, one morning when I came to day shift and was started being team leader, I remember you had brought a patient over from the floor to our floor. And because that patient, something had happened, their respiratory status had declined. They had an increase in O2 requirements. They were needing BiPAP. There was just something like that going on. And I remember you came and found me on day shift and were like, I just want to let you know this patient is back here in this room and I'm concerned about him. And you let me know that not only, because obviously, you know, you've got the nurse that was on night shift that would have that patient, the day shift nurse that would be getting handoff, but you wanted me to know, be an extra set of eyes. I'm leaving. I've been here all night, so I'm going home. But you like took those, the extra time to come find me and say, can you, 
you know, basically, I think you kind of wanted me to be an extension of you to keep an eye on the patient. And so that you have that extra set of eyes and, and somebody thinking about it, not just like laying back there, maybe on the BiPAP and nobody's nobody's thinking about their respiratory status or what's going on. Right. Well, that communication loops, uh, it's really important to close that. So one of your team leaders kind of teases me a little bit and she says, uh, David's coming in hot so when, I, when I'm bringing a, a patient down from the floor. So, uh, yeah. It's good to have that that close communication. So yeah, yeah, I'm glad that worked out pretty well. Yeah, no, and it makes a huge impression on me because uh, I love seeing people that are so. And our hospital is full of nurses like this, people who are so proud of what they do and and take their job so seriously. And they every single patient is important, and not just not just task oriented, just getting things done and passing meds and doing this, but actually thinking about the patient and taking their job very, very seriously. And so you are such a, um, a mentor and an example of an, not just a good nurse, an excellent nurse. And that's something that's like, I mean, for me, good nurse, bad nurse, I'm okay being a good nurse. An excellent nurse is just like, I put you right in that category. And I, I really, really appreciate having you on my podcast. I feel like it's an honor. I really have looked up to you. I don't know that you even knew who I was before, but when you messaged me, I was like, oh my gosh, David, what? I even was showing people like, look who just texted me. Look at this. So (laughs) honestly, it's an honor. Well, that's uh, thank you for those kind words. It's an honor to be here too. I'm really excited about doing this podcast. Thank you. Well, having said that, we can get into, we have three pretty cool stories the first one I'm really excited about because we every now and then touch on organ donation on the show. And we talk about maybe a nurse who's donated an organ or a nurse. Uh, well, we had a nurse who helped, who I interviewed that gave a kidney to her aunt. And uh, that was awesome. And her aunt was a nurse too. That was a really neat show. Um, and then we just talk about, you know, nurses who maybe passed away and then they did like the honor walk for them or, or that sort of thing. So I thought this, when I saw this kidney project, um, and I found it on Vanderbilt's uh, website, but it's a, it's a national thing that's going on. It's like a, it's multiple universities. That's right. I think they're somewhere around three or five, something like that. So yeah, it's a national effort. Yeah. And they're, they're trying to engineer an artificial kidney, which would be amazing if they're able to actually make this work. Yes, absolutely. And and apparently they're using renal tissue cells along with nanotechnology together to make these kidneys. It's really fascinating. So where, where we live, there is a large national laboratory. And I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to tour out there a couple of times, every now and then they have a chance for the community to go in and tour and see different things. And I got to see this little, an example of nanotechnology where they made, they had little things you could look at. And that was so fascinating to sit there and look at this tiny, tiny little thing. So when I read that, that was what I, I, I immediately thought about that nanotechnology and how little. And when you think about the kidney and the, all of the intricate details in a kidney, the things that it does, is just amazing. So if they really could engineer something that really does all the things that a kidney does, filtering, and it's 
it's just, it's fascinating to me. Do you think they really will be able to do this? I do. I think, in fact, I think they're really, really close to being able to do it. It sounded and, like uh, it. Yeah. And, you know, I was amazed. I did, uh, I looked up uh, some numbers and I saw that uh, 23,401 kidney transplants were done last year. And Ooh. there were, so that's 23,401. And there are 102,880 people on a waiting list and only 20% of them get kidneys. So there are a lot of people out there with a need and uh, there aren't nearly enough human kidneys to, to provide the need out there. Well, kidney disease is something that it can kind of, it kind of sneaks up on you. You know, people just, they're, they're sitting there, their kidneys are failing. uh, They they're, they start to not work for one reason or another, high blood pressure, diabetes, whatever. And before they know it, by the time they start having symptoms, it's too late. It is the silent disease. I was looking that up too over, I think the facts that I was looking at was from 2013. And it said over 600,000 Americans have kidney failure. And 468,000 people of those people are on dialysis. Yeah, and what a terrible life that is. Oh you my know, gosh. Three day three days a week, you're sitting there for hours and yeah. feel sick all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really tough, uh, tough disease to deal with. That is that I cannot imagine three days a week having to go into a dialysis clinic and sit there for three to four hours. It's just it, it would have to be just exhausting and I, I can totally understand why we get patients sometimes that are just not compliant and just decide, I can't do this, it's too hard. And then, unfortunately, you know, that, that, that does not end well. So they come in so sick. It's just, it's horrible. It really is. They do. And a lot of the, you know, we see, because we're a, a kidney transplant center, we see patients that get a kidney and then they have their kidney fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a, a terrible, terrible disease. And if they, could, if they could manufacture this device and have it useful for this huge population, it would be wonderful. Well, I hope that it really does happen. I'm I'm excited about it. They seem, I watched an interview about it, and they seem optimistic. So I don't know how close they are, but I hope that uh, they get whatever funding or grant money that they need and that they're able to do. Because not only, obviously, the lives that are going to be saved, but the quality of life that will be increased if they're able to do this. And it also will save money. There's so much money. If you can get an artificial kidney and you're not having to go to dialysis, there's money involved in all of that stuff as well. Absolutely. Medicare spends a a huge amount of money on patients with kidney disease and mm -hmm. dialysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of money I think could be saved and a lot of lives could be saved. Absolutely. So I guess we can talk about this week. We're going to talk about a bad doctor. And this is a very popular true crime story among people who are kind of aficionados of of true crime because it's one of the first true crime stories of sort of modern day media, I guess. I mean, there there were ones from before this, I know, because I've talked about them. But this is a it was a big story because it happened in Los Angeles. You guys, I many of you might be familiar with the Black Dahlia story. It was Elizabeth Short was her name. And so this story that we're going to focus on is a doctor who is suspected to be involved with that. 
So he is our bad doctor, and we'll get into reasons why, but even if he's not associated with that, he's still a bad doctor. Don't worry. (laughs) So even if he's not, so he fits the bill for sure. So George Hodel is his name, and he was born in 1900, and he was an American physician. He was a gynecologist, but when he was in medical school, he excelled in surgery, and that'll be a key point later on in the story. (laughs) Foreshadowing. Yes. So he was raised in Los Angeles, California. He was an only child, well-educated, highly intelligent. He had a 186 on his IQ test. Oh, wow. I don't even think they do those anymore, but still, that's... And he liked to let everyone know that was one point higher than Einstein. Wow. I'm sure he was very intelligent. He was a musical prodigy, graduated from high school at 15, and then went to school at the California Institute of Technology, but had to leave after a scandal involving his professor's wife, (laughs) where apparently she got pregnant with his child. And he wanted them to raise a child together, but she was, you know, not, well, no, I'm already, I already have a husband. Um, and so he had to leave school because of that. And so then around 1928, he was in a relationship with a woman named Amelia and had a son by her, whose name was Duncan. In the 30s, he became actually married to a model from San Francisco. Her name was Dorothy Anthony. And the two of them had a daughter named Tamar. Now, Tamar, I don't know if you were able to uh, go on YouTube and look up any videos, but I watched some videos. She, She's very vocal about her childhood, and so there's just there's pretty much this whole story surrounds. It's, it's kind of about her, really. And there's been a lot, there's been a lot of, like, there's a, there is a podcast, an entire podcast dedicated to just this story. Really? I didn't see that. What is it called? Something evil. It's some it's a weird name. Like it doesn't have any it's not it doesn't have any of the obvious names in it, but it has something something to the word evil is in it, but it is the I think grandchildren, I think it's Tamar's daughter or something. it's like relatives of George Hodel. And they are telling they're talking about the story and they go all the way back. Um and they tell this whole story. I haven't listened to it, but a friend of mine from work was telling me about it so I kind of went back and just it's very extensive and I'm more of a just tell the whole story in one episode kind of girl (laughs) I have a short attention span so (laughs) So, he had Tamar he graduated from Berkeley pre-med in 1932 then went to medical school at the University of California at San Francisco got his medical degree in 1936 so he he kind of he after he kind of got established uh, as a doctor there in Los Angeles he really started moving in some affluent circles he would have these elaborate parties where all these hollywood people would be there really famous people he really rubbed elbows with a lot of big names of that day kind of sounds like a, an Epstein sort of figure Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I never even equated that, but you're right. It He really does sound like an Epstein sort of type of person because 
he's sort of like on the outskirts, but yet connected to all of these famous people. Right. And into all of this weird stuff. He was sort of enamored with, well, let's just say he kind of got into, you know, he was an artist. He liked music. He loved art. Well, he sort of became enamored with sort of the darker side, surrealism. And he liked artists like Man Ray and John Huston who were into sadomasochism and just doing these really weird films and paintings and whatever their art is that were sort of sexual in nature or like, you know, just dark stuff. One of Man Ray's paintings was of a dismembered woman. And it was, there's some sort of... um, mythical creature that was equated I don't know there's some sort of story he painted a woman in the shape of this mythical creature some creature that devoured you know young women or something like that like a god or I don't know what it was but I didn't care enough to look into it I was just like yeah but that will be important later on too so that's the sort of thing they were into and he was fascinated by those people and just yeah, that's that's some foreshadowing there yeah what's going to happen no no doubt and he he was just it was like the darker and the sicker he that it was this and more taboo the subject that's where he wanted to go it's like his mind was just so warped so he got married in 1940 to another woman her name was also dorothy so his second wife was named dorothy and then he purchased this large home called the Soden House in 1945, and it was in Hollywood. So this house, you will see this house or, I don't know, like replications of it in different movies and depic- depictions of this story. This story's been done many times in different ways through movies or TV shows that use this as a, you know, loosely use the storyline. It's just something that's... And, Once you've heard the story, you'll recognize it. It's kind of like Jane Austen books. And then if you read Jane Austen books like Emma, and then you're watching a romantic comedy and you're just like, they literally just ripped off Jane Austen. That's Emma. And it's, (laughs) but it's done in a modern, you know, way. Or Pride and Prejudice has been done a million times over through Bridget Jones Diary and all these other, you know, modern movies. And you're just like, well, I'm glad somebody's letting Jane Austen live. You'd think they would give her credit for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the same thing. So um, that happens with this story. You, I'll be you know, watching a Law & Order episode or something, and I'll be like, oh, that's a, the Black Dahlia story. It, but they'll call it something different, you know? Yeah. It's just an infamous story. Well, nothing's changed in history. Mm-mm. Things just repeat themselves over yep. and over. True. Yeah. Very true. My dad said once, he said, you can learn everything about human nature from all the Shakespeare plays. They're all, you know, it's, it's, they're just soap operas and uh, nothing's really changed over time. It's true. If you go back and, and you read those plays, it's interesting because you're just like, wow. And there's a lot of things like that. If you go back and look at, read books from 200 years ago and you just think, oh, that's so long ago. The older I get, the it's not that long ago. It's weird. As you get older, you start to realize, oh my gosh, that really wasn't that long ago, was it? But people are the same. They really are. Yes, they are. So in January of 1947, this lady was walking along the sidewalk with her 
child, like in a stroller, and she looked over and saw what she thought was a mannequin that was just like over in a ditch or in like a field. And she thought, well, that's going to scare kids coming by. So she went over to, I, I don't know, look closer or just try to maybe move it or something. And then when she got closer, she realized it was a real person. This was the quote, Black Dahlia. And that was uh, named, she was named that, nicknamed that by the media, because a couple of years before this happened, there was a movie, a very popular movie called The Blue Dahlia. And so they just grabbed, you know how the media, they'll just grab onto something. And once it takes hold, like this is literally her name now. She's. Yeah. I don't see the parallel though. It just seems so weird that they would, you know, use that movie as a, as an example for the name. Well, think about Watergate, the Watergate hotel, like the whole reason that that, that scandal and the surrounding Nixon was called Watergate was because it was the Watergate hotel. But now think of all the, the, the blank gate things that happen and they have nothing to do with Watergate, but people just, use that and eventually they'll probably get to a point where like why do they even why do they call it that that's how mm-hmm. things just catch on who knows what you know maybe the first person that decided that decided the blue dahlia the black dahlia who knows what their reasoning was well at any rate that must have been a gruesome discovery to come on that body well yeah because not only was it obviously you know horrible to, to find this young woman dead you know in in the field like that she was not clothed and she was brutally mutilated she was cut in half at the waist and her mouth was cut ear to ear and her body was positioned in a very strange way like her arms up over her head and so you know we've talked about man ray and his painting of the female in the body parts positioned uh, in the shape of the mythical creature that devours, you know, young females. And some people think that the way that she was positioned sort of is emulating that art. Yeah, it was bizarre. And he tucked her intestines underneath her buttocks. It was very strange. Very strange. And the, 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 the cuts where she was, where the severed, the places where she was cut were very clean and surgical. And so because of this, the investigators were just sure that it had to be a surgeon or at least a physician of some sort that had some medical knowledge of how, how to cut someone up because it was done, it was obviously done by a professional. Or at least they, that's what they thought. The incisions on the face were strange. It was, uh, uh, they, they called it a Glasgow smile. Mm. So uh, have you, did you hear that? Uh, apparently, apparently they came from some uh, gangs in Ireland. Oh. Or no, Glasgow, Scotland, I guess. And so they used to take a utility knife and make those incisions from the corner of the mouth up to the ear on both sides. So it left a scar there and it looked like they were, I'm always smiling. They called it the Glasgow smile. It reminds me of the Joker. <laughs> yeah. You know, because he has the, the cut, like the, the really creepy one from Heath Ledger, where Heath, Le- Heath Ledger was the Joker. And, you know, he, ugh. That's a yeah. very disturbing movie. So the, also that that cut on her 
face. It also emulated another form of art, apparently, that had something to do with the mouth or, or something like that. So some people think that that's a pretty big clue because he was so obsessed with this art and who else would do this? You know, who else? It, you would think it would be someone. I, I mean, I, I tend to, I think it, it, it lends some credibility to that theory. Sure. So, I mean, not that you could convict someone, you know, of just based on that, but it's, it's a layer to the onion, you know? Right. So they did start interviewing hundreds of suspects. They got it narrowed down. People were coming out of the woodwork everywhere to confess. <laughs> what in the world? People were going, they were lining up to confess to this murder. And it, women, too. It was just like, I did it. No, I did it. And they were like having to weed through all these people. Like, all obviously, you guys, you know, you guys didn't do it. But they finally had to weed through everyone and got it down to about 25. George Hodel was one of those 25. And the thing is, after this happened late in 1949, Tamar, his daughter, is now a teenager. Well, she fled his house one day, and she ran away from home and accused him of sexually abusing her. And he was arrested and charged with incest, and they actually had a trial. And even though there were three witnesses, there were two witnesses that actually testified that they saw him sexually abusing her. They literally saw him, and they testified to it. One of them did not testify. They they said they saw him, but then they recanted. And a lot of people think that, that that person was threatened. But even though we had two eyewitnesses, he was acquitted after the trial. Yeah, this, guy, this guy had friends in low places. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And the really, oh, you know, there's so many sad parts of this, but one, it was so disturbing when I was kind of watching this video and his daughter, Tamar, talked about how after this happened, she was made to be a horrible person in in the media and every everywhere. It, it made her look like she was lying about it. And they made it, you know, it sort of made her out to be this person that's just, you know, trying to be vindictive against her father and is just telling lies when everyone knew it was true. But I, I mean, I guess someone's acquitted and that gives some sort of, I don't, I think that there are plenty of people who are acquitted that everybody still kind of knows. Hello, OJ, you know? Right. Well, you know, and what's strange is, um, and I'm sure you'll get to this later, but later on, Miss Short was made out by the media to be some degenerate, you know, they really, uh, they really blasted her in the media and all kinds of rumors surfaced about what kind of a person she was and so forth. And here she had, you know, been slain by this evil man. I'm glad you said that because I, I don't know that I was going to remember to say that. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, in a, uh, one of the videos I was watching, there was a woman who was Elizabeth short was her babysitter. And so she, with the time of this video would have, she looked like she might've been, I don't know, 70 or something and so 
she was obviously younger than her, but she has very vivid memories of her. And it really has always bothered her all these years that the, the stories get, you know, kind of fly around and people just flippantly refer to her as a prostitute or say, you know, she would just sleep with different men so she could get parts in movies and, and that sort of thing. And she hated that, 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 that it wasn't fair to her. And she said she was not, it wasn't true. It just wasn't true. Even if it was true, what, why do you, why in the world would people want to say that about someone if, even if they were struggling and they, whatever choices they made, it's their choice. And why are we going to smear them after they've died such a horrible death? It's not even appropriate anyway. But she said it absolutely wasn't true. And it just bothered her all these years. So I'm glad that you thought to say, to say that for her well, you know it sounds like the media back then was even worse than it is now i know you know apparently after miss short died the reporters from the los angeles examiner called her mom and uh told her mother that miss short had won a beauty contest and uh that was a way for them to uh, get as much information from her mother get as much information as they could uh, about miss short from her mother and then at the end of the conversation, I guess they broke it to her that really the reason they were calling was because she'd been murdered. Oh, my God. So they, so they sort of tricked her mother. In fact, they, they even paid for her to come out to Los Angeles to help with the investigation. But when she got out there, they then kept her away from the police. It was really bizarre. The media was awful. And then, like I said, after that, they started talking about her adventurous escapades along Hollywood Boulevard oh, and sake, all these yeah. things. So she really, they made that made her out to just be a terrible person. In reality, she was a lovely young lady who was, who had come to Hollywood. She was wanting to be an actress. She, that's, that was it. That, that was who she was and period. There's really nothing else. She didn't have another, uh, the rest of the story because it, she was, her life was cut short so she didn't have an opportunity to be, you know, anything else or to, to figure out what she was going to do in life. That's really sad. So once um, all this happened and they never solved this case. Okay, so there's all these people. They're wondering. They think it's a physician. They, they suspect Hodel. They suspect all these. There were like seven physicians on the list of 25 suspects. So they really thought it was it was a physician, but they never could really hone in on anyone or they just didn't have they maybe they felt like they didn't have enough evidence well in 2003 the investigation that had been done by the police kind of came to light because the there was a file that was found in um, a vault at the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and it and the file was called George Hodel dash Black Dahlia, like it was, you know, you can imagine going through this vault and and coming across a file that says George Hodel Black Dahlia. Would you not just be like, whoa, what yeah. is this? And that's pretty much. And his son grew up to be a police officer. So this was just some box of evidence in a, mm-hmm. in a vault somewhere that somebody at the district just sort of ran across at the district attorney's office. And huh. you know, my thing is like, I feel like. Everybody was a daggum crook back then because they have all this evidence and they were just sitting on it. The district attorney's office. I can understand if it was the defense attorney, but this is the district attorney's office. It's their job to prosecute, is it not? Right. It is. So what are they doing with all this evidence? And no one even knew it was there. So they found out this file in this file. Um, it showed that in 1950, they were really 
close, like really honing in on him for this murder in particular. And they, in fact, bugged his home, that big ho- that house he was he was living in. So they actually had transcripts of conversations that were recorded between him and, I don't know, other people, I guess, that were in on or knew about the shady things that he was doing. One of the things that that he was talking about is the fact that he would perform illegal abortions in his basement. He would give payoffs to law enforcement. And then he also had a secretary who died under suspicious circumstances. It was deemed a suicide. And didn't he say that um, even if he did kill her, they couldn't prove it because his secretary was dead? Right. So she must have really had some had some dirt on him. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. So if you are in, in your own home, so you don't think anyone is listening and you're talking to someone who you obviously can trust that is aware of your darker side, and you say something like, well, suppose I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They right. can't They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. This guy was connected. He mm-hmm. he had so many friends or so many people that he was able to influence with money or who knows. But he he definitely uh, was able to to cover everything up. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1949, they actually his name was actually in a formal written report that was to be sent to the grand jury as one of five suspects in her murder, but none of them were actually submitted to the grand jury for consideration because I guess they were they didn't still feel like they had enough evidence. So then in 1950, the prosecutor felt like he did have enough evidence to charge and was about to arrest him when Hodel left the United States. Oh, I didn't know that. So how would he if if you are the prosecutor and you know you're about to go arrest somebody, how does he how did he know to just take off and leave the United States? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awfully convenient. Shady, shady story. Mm -hmm. So once he left the United States, he got a degree in psychiatry and supposedly counseled prisoners in prison in Hawaii for three years, which he was living in the Philippines. Okay. I'm going to be really ignorant right now. What year did Hawaii become a state? Mm, I don't know. Because this was 1950 and it said he left the United States and he was in Hawaii. So. I guess it was after 1950. <laughs> Maybe that's why I moved to the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I guess this is the United States. I got to keep moving. Well, and the Philippines were probably pretty uh, America friendly back then. There was a mm. large military presence there post-war, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, it was a friendly place for uh, uh, for Americans to go. Okay, yeah. Well, he apparently started a new family there, which is very disheartening for me to hear because I'm just thinking that poor family who knows what horrors they had to endure he came back to the United States in 1990 and then got married a fourth time in San Francisco to a woman named June and he stayed there for the remainder of his life he died in 1999 and he was 91 so one thing just to kind of that's that's his story but just to backtrack a little bit about Tamar because she is a fascinating person and I really encourage you guys to if you want if you want to listen to that podcast I think you would like it because if you like podcasts that are sort of highly produced and have you know music and you have someone narrating in a very scripted way and then they inter intertwine interviews people out at different 
different interviews and different voices. I like podcasts like that as well. That's what this is like. And it's, it's several episodes, but it kind of goes back and tells a lot about her story. And what one detail that I thought, it's just so it's really sad, but I, I just wanted to mention it because she had a baby. And they said that she had a quote, back alley abortion. And I think that a lot of these details are kind of like, I didn't know which what to believe. I mean, I don't know. I can't tell when I'm looking which is a, you know, legitimate source and which is not, and who, what, what's made up and what isn't. You probably couldn't tell back then, much less now. Right. But it seems like from all of the things that I, I saw, and she, I saw an interview with her daughter. But she was pregnant, and supposedly she had an abortion. And then she moved in with her mother, her biological mother, because they were divorced. When she moved in with her biological mother, her story was that she then was raped by a neighborhood person and got pregnant again, and then gave that baby up for adoption. Okay. My thing is, I I mean, I'm not saying that it's my place to say she's, you know, making that up. But I wonder, and I think a lot of people wonder, if maybe that she didn't really have the abortion, and that really was his baby that she gave up. And that woman's name is Fauna. And she is, she is, she tells her story. I think she wonders too. Mm-hmm. When she gave her up for adoption, she listed her on her birth certificate as African American. And she grew up thinking she was African American. Then what a she twisted story. Is that not crazy? And then she yeah. finds out later on who her family is. And she starts looking at it and she's like, wait, I don't think my father was this person that raped her. I think my father is him, which it's. You know, maybe she was just trying to, she didn't want to, you know, say that her father was, that this, this, maybe she's doing it for the child, you know. Anyway, very complicated story, very sad and tragic. Not just bad doctor, absolutely horrible, horrible human being. And I'm just thankful he's not on this earth anymore, just to be honest. So his son got involved. I guess with this case, yes. and it was resurrected. Well, yeah, he's yeah. his son was a police officer, and then he retired. And I yeah. guess he's when he's found all this ev- evidence. Yeah, he's he is really into investigating the story. And has written books, and he travels around and does talks. Yeah, yeah, and they they took a I guess a, a team went over to his dad's house, and they took a dog downstairs. And the dog sniffed out, I guess, de- decomposing. Flesh. I guess oh he could gosh. he could he could smell this decomposing flesh, and so they took soil samples from the basement of the doctor's house. And I don't know what the status is on, you know, what they found in those soil samples, but uh, I thought it was kind of crazy that after what sixty some years, a dog could smell hmm. decomposed flesh in the basement. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he, I saw that on Wikipedia. You never know. Hey, Wikipedia. It's true in Wikipedia, right? It's all if it's on Wikipedia, it's a hundred percent true. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> where I get all my information. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's where I got my nursing uh-huh. degree. No, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> so, is there is this case uh, anywhere near being final? Do you know if they've? Uh... I don't think that there is a way because all of that evidence that they, all of the evidence that is pertaining to this case somehow magically disappeared from the police, like the police vault, you know, where they keep evidence. It's all gone. Yeah. So there's really not a way to solve this. And he's gone. And, you know, it probably will not be solved. But there are people who, and his son is one of them, 
who really do believe he is the one that killed her. Yeah. For sure. But even if he didn't, he's a horrible person. There's just no doubt about that. And there's no telling what all he really did that nobody even ever suspected or found out about. And he's a very intelligent man. If These things are probably things that he just got a little sloppy. Right. And he got away with it. Mm-hmm. Look at, I mean, he lived to be 91 and never spent a day in jail. This is crazy. What yeah. a bad doctor. Horrible, horrible doctor. Bad doctor. So let's talk about a good doctor then. Yeah, that sounds, it's about time. Yeah. yeah it sounds good. I'm always like, I always am so happy when I get to this part because I'm just like, you spend so much time talking about that dark stuff that I just want to like get that my clean my mind with something nicer, you know? Yeah. And th- I cannot think of a better story than this absolutely adorable, precious story about this doctor, Dr. Russell Donner, I think is maybe how you say it. Do you think yeah, that's how? I think so. I think that's how you say it. Okay. So doctor. I had, I had bad doctor on my mind. So I thought of D-O-N-N-E-R like the, oh my like gosh. the Donner, the Donner, the Donner pass, but yeah. Pass. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think that's how you say his name, Donner. That's what it looks like. Okay, so he was, Dr. Donner was born in 1925, and he was a general surgeon and a private medical practitioner in Illinois. And what I thought was so neat about his story, he's very, he's a fascinating person for lots of reasons, Uh, was born on a farm. He was sick as a child and had very high fevers and seizures, and he had a doctor who would take, who would come to, to check on him and see him. And he would wake up from a seizure and see this doctor. And that inspired him to become a doctor, which I always love stories like that too. But he was a World War II army veteran. And I'm, there is nothing more adorable to me than a World War II vet with his little hat on. <laughs> gosh. Or like any, any veteran with their hat. I'm just like, oh my gosh. I love it so much. Appreciate them so much. He was a U.S. Army military. He was in the U.S. Army military police unit in Washington D.C. Guarded the Pentagon. Met Harry Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower. So he had a really fascinating life. But the the really neat thing about him that and what makes him the good doctor for me is that when he first started out seeing patients, he charged two dollars for an office visit. At some point, that increased to five. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. He didn't take insurance. He just, he he was just charged $5. And he did house calls and patients would line up outside his office or on the town square waiting for his office to open up. And service was just, you know, on a first come, first serve basis. He would see everyone that came and medical records were kept on handwritten index cards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this reminds me of my my great granddad was a doctor oh. In, oh, uh, really? in North Carolina back in the early parts of the 20th century. And he used to take chickens and eggs for payment, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> you know, a roast, you know, just anything that oh anybody could bring. Yeah. So there are all kinds of stories uh, that have been passed down through the family about him and and then stories from uh, people who were patients, too. So anyway, it was kind of neat. It reminded me of my great granddad. I bet that. That's a that's a perfect analogy here. He's he sounds like the same kind of same kind of person. And the, mm-hmm. this guy, he what this is amazing. I cannot imagine this, but it says he worked 7 days a week and never took a vacation. Yeah. He saw patients and then at the end of the day he would go and see nursing home people. 
So I'm, you would go, go visit the nursing home and on Saturdays, go visit the nursing home just to see how everybody's doing, I guess. Wow. He was said to have delivered over 3,500 babies. Hmm. He had a, um, he wore a suit and tie. That was his uniform. And then he had a, a signature hat that he always wore. And there's a statue in Central Park in Rushville, Illinois of him. And it's got his little hat. It's so cute. <laughs> it's so cute. He's got his hat on, his glasses. He has his suit and a little sweater vest with his tie under it. And there's a, a little girl sitting beside him with the stethoscope in her ears. And she's got the stethoscope up to his chest. Yeah. That's so that's cute. A, that's really a cute picture. Mm-hmm. 58 years of medical practice. He retired in 2013, and then he died at the age of 90 on August 7th in 2015. I think after medical school, didn't he go to this small town to work for just a little while? He agreed to go back back home to work for just a little while. I think he wanted to be a cardiologist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but he agreed to go back and work for a little while in this town, and he wound up staying there. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That reminds yeah. me of George Bailey. <laughs> Who's that? George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, where he's like, no, I'm getting out of here. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you got to work just a little while. And he just keeps staying and staying. <laughs> well, he lost his wife because of it. She uh, oh. she didn't want to she didn't want to be a doctor's wife in a little town, I guess. So they got Ooh. divorced and he never was married again. Oh, my goodness. I didn't yeah, so even he, know that part. Yeah, he stayed single. For the rest of his life. Well, what about so he could that? serve man, humankind to serve man at, at five <laughs> five bucks a shot. Oh man, I love this story. I love the good stories. They always make me feel so much better, and we can end everything on a nice, lighthearted note. Yeah, you know what was funny too? I had an uncle who was a doctor, and he said that the only reason he went to medical school was so he could afford to be a farmer. And at the end of the story that I read about this fella, he said he didn't make enough money to pay his, uh, what, 86-year-old secretary and 85-year-old <laughs> nurse. Uh, he didn't make enough money from the proceeds of being a physician. He had to rely on, you know, revenue from his farm, uh, you know, to pay people. So. <laughs> well, our medical um, field, our medical industry has changed a lot over the years. Yes, it has. doesn't look like that anymore. It's Although, a good story, though. Oh, Yeah. We do have good doctors and lots of good medical professionals. I wish our healthcare system was just better. It's just kind of broken, I feel like, right now. Yeah. It's a lot different these days, I guess. And the doctors make a lot more money, most of them. Yeah, they really do. I, I Sometimes I wonder, they do make a lot of money, but they also sacrifice so much of their lives. And I, I try to remind people of this because especially new nurses, they don't, you know, a lot of them are thinking in their minds, doctors, or they make all this money and they have the, they, their job is easier or they have this misconception of what they do for one thing. And, and I think how much money they make, but also stop and think about how many years they have to devote to their education before they ever start making that money. And then they have malpractice insurance and the amount of hours that they work and the pressure that they're under. It's just, I feel like they deserve they deserve that money. Uh, that's that I personally believe that. You know, the, to, to be a cardiologist, whether that's a, I think a three-year fellowship, and uh, and then after that, if you want to be a, you know, an electrophysiologist or an interventionist, that's another couple of years. So that's like surgery. Uh, those guys do a five-year five-year uh, residency and then a fellowship after that. They really don't start making money until they're in their mid-thirties. Mid-thirties. Think yeah. about that. 
How, yeah, so what if we didn't have people who were willing to sacrifice all those years for that education? I mean, we, do we really want to be without them? No. No. I think, and, and while, they're do, while they're in school and in these residencies, yeah, they get paid, but peanuts. They don't get paid near what they, they don't get paid near what uh, uh, other doctors are getting until they get out on their own. Yeah, we make more than they do by the, if you count it by the hour. I mean, By the hour. Are, yeah, mm-hmm. those guys are working so many hours. Oh, yeah. Guys and gals. Sorry. They are. Well, I say guys for everybody. It's just a, for me, it's a universal pronoun. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Well, I just like to remind people to be nice to your doctors, to all your providers. They're working very hard. They're under a lot of stress. Many times have, you know, how sometimes if we are short staffed and we have more patients than we quote are really supposed to, that our, that our acuity level or our ratios call for, um, sometimes they are doing that too. And they're having a hard time getting all over the hospital and down to the ED to do an admit or back up to do a discharge and to get patients out so they can bring more in. And they, they're, they're just like us. They're trying to see all their patients and do what all they need to do. So give them a break. <laughs> That's right. You know, our, I, I learned not long ago that the, the nurse practitioners that have floor call at, at our hospital get 1.8 new uh, text threads on perfect serve every minute. Oh, what? Yes. I can't even, I can't even add that up. That's so many calls. That's a lot of people. I don't know how they keep up with all of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Well, my hat's off to them. I could not do it. I, I don't have any desire to do it whatsoever. So I really admire advanced practice nurses for what they do and I appreciate them. And I think personally, I believe they should have full practice authority in the state of Tennessee. Hello, legislators. Are you listening? Yes. Well, I feel like we did, we need more providers. So they're there and they're educated. So let them do, let them work at the top of their education and training, you know? Mm. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's really been fun. Well, you guys, uh, be sure and go on to goodnursebadnurse.com and give me some feedback. And you can find me on Instagram at goodnursebadnursepodcast or Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or bad boy, right, David? That's right. (laughs) Be a good nurse.